Greetings and salutations. This is Volts for May 13th, 2022. Volts podcast, Doug Thompson defends the deep state. I'm your host, David Roberts. It is well understood that the modern U.S. conservative movement is a mix of two primary forces, fiscal and social conservatism. To put it more crudely, it's the oligarchs and the evangelical white nationalists. The left's pushback to social conservatism, anti-racism, and civil rights more broadly is well-developed and richly articulated. But what about the oligarchs and their stated mission to, in Steve Bannon's words, deconstruct the administrative state? Where is the left's defense of the administrative state, or as it's less fondly known, the bureaucracy? or even less fondly, the deep state. Who will speak up for the deep state? The left has an ambivalent relationship with bureaucracy, which, after all, has only overlapped with democracy for the last century or so, and has largely failed to articulate a coherent defense, even as Biden's administration scrambles to rebuild the agencies Trump decimated. The right has told a clear, consistent story. Government bureaucracies are corrupt, inefficient, incompetent, and expensive. It has been repeated to the point that it is folk wisdom. To this day, the left does not have a similarly clear and consistent counterstory about the merits of bureaucracy, or, to use a less loaded term, administrative capacity. State administrative capacity may not be well theorized on the left, but it is nonetheless a necessary condition of virtually all progressive solutions to contemporary problems climate change chief among them. The wealthy cannot be taxed, corporations cannot be forced to follow the rules, and wealth cannot be transferred to those in need without a robust, competent administrative state. My guest today, Doug Thompson, an associate professor of political science at the University of South Carolina, has been thinking and writing about bureaucracy lately as part of a larger book project on authoritarianism in America. He wondered why aspiring autocrats invariably degrade administrative capacity the second they are able. What do they know about it that small-d Democrats don't seem to? Which led him to an investigation of bureaucracy that ended up tracing through Tocqueville and Du Bois. Anyway, I'm excited to geek out with Thompson today about the intense oligarchic hatred of the administrative state, America's rich and somewhat surprising history with bureaucracy, and the kinds of positive arguments that can be made on behalf of administrative capacity as such. Without further ado, Doug Thompson, welcome to Volts. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about bureaucracy, which many people mistakenly think is boring or a boring subject. We're going to set them straight on this. Um, So let's start with this history. I mean, one of the points you make in your writing is that bureaucracy and democracy have a somewhat uh, separate histories (laughs) and only really intertwined recently. And as a consequence, sort of our ways of thinking and talking about democracy were sort of shaped in a pre-bureaucratic age. (laughs) And we don't really have a robust sort of language to defend democratic bureaucracy as such. So tell us a little bit just about that history and sort of how that's shaped political science and political views. Uh, Sure. So bureaucracy uh, has been around for thousands of years. Uh, You know, if you go back to the the founding of the first unified Chinese empire, it's founded and established uh, uh, by putting together all of these warring states that had been little statelets that had been at war with each other for a few hundred years prior to that. And all of these states over the course of their uh, development had uh, acquired pretty significant administrative capacity. They had a dedicated, professionalized, somewhat professionalized uh, bureaucracy that was able to levy taxes and measure the population and, and measure land and take all that information down to help uh, you know, the first emperors of, of, uh, of China rule. 
And uh, this set China on this path uh, that it continues to be on to this day of the rise and fall of dynasties, but the constant reconstruction of those dynasties on the basis of a pretty significantly powerful and centralized uh, bureaucratic state. But that's, of course, th- those are an autocratic <laughs> societies. Right. Um, and on the other hand, you, you have um, you know democratic societies typically developed not only in the absence of bureaucracy, but also because of the absence of bureaucracy in many cases. If you're, you know, a ruler and you want to ask your people or force your people, or demand your people to pay some taxes, uh, you can't just, you know, yell it from the, the treetops and, and, <laughs> right. and expect them to pay up all of a sudden. So if you if you don't have a dedicated administrative system to collect that kind of revenue, for example kind of policy that nobody likes, no one wants to pay taxes, then you have to go to other elites in your uh, society or uh, perhaps even a broad swath of the population if it's a relatively democratic place, and you have to consult with them and, uh, and, and convince them to pay up and why it's in their interests. And so we see the development of early democratic institutions that way because of the absence of bureaucracy. And right. I'm uh, thinking of a, a book by David Stasevich that came out recently when I'm talking about this. So you have these two separate trajectories, and it's really not until very recently, 19th, but certainly in the 20th centuries, when you have um, you have large-scale democracies like the United States, where you have a huge swath of the population that's able to vote, tied to a pretty significant uh, bureaucratic institutions for the mm-hmm. first time. Because when the U.S. was founded, I think that's a, a great example of that uh, demand for democracy because of the absence of bureaucracy. You know, in s- 1600s in the North American colonies, there's no administrative institutions anywhere nearby. And so if the folks uh, running those English colonies on that stolen land, let's call it what it is, um, <laughs> you know, uh, if they want to build, uh, you know, a schoolhouse or build a road or uh, irrigate their fields or whatever it is they want to do, there's no administrative system there that can carry out those policies. So they have to come together, consult with each other, debate with each other, and then all vote together uh, what to do. You can kind of picture that, right? In early America, how the absence of bureaucracy uh, you know, made democracy necessary. And as you say, um, in, in a lot of ways, in the political science literature, and also I think just kind of in the, our folk wisdom, our folk ways of talking, a lot of times bureaucracy is sort of set against democracy or somehow it is sort of framed as counter to the spirit of democracy. Do you know what I mean? And, and I think, uh, you know, that's probably a consequence also of bureaucracy coming late to the game. I think that's right. And I think uh, there's also a, another issue that, that comes up is that when you get the developments of uh, the, the earliest you know, development of modern democracies in the 19th and 20th century, that's like larger scale, more inclusive you know, democracy where people vote for representatives rather than small councils of elites <laughs> debating amongst themselves, like in Athens. You also, this is the time where bureaucracies begin to develop in these democratic societies. Happens to also coincide with probably uh, the greatest you know, humanitarian crimes <laughs> in human history. Yes, very notably bureaucratized. <laughs> right, bureaucratized. Yes. And so I, I think bureaucracy gets a bad name, you know, in many ways because of that. We think of the, the Nazi regime and its horribly bureaucratized uh, you know, system of mass murder, you know, and you think of the, the personified in Adolf Eichmann from uh, Hannah Arendt's book. And we also think of, uh, you know, the Stalin regime in the Soviet Union. Which also, uh, you know, kills millions and uh, known to have a, a centralized bureaucratic state. So, you know, th- th- those are good reasons for bureaucracy to have a bad name. And I think also in the American case, um, Robert McNamara's Pentagon during the Vietnam War was also a heavily bureaucratized uh, system with all kinds of weird benchmarks with body counts and like horrible stuff like this. That that also was rationalized murder. You know, Americans killed two million Vietnamese people. So, uh, you know, there, there are reasons why bureaucracy got a bad name as it was being attached to democracies because it was put to, frankly, anti-democratic uses as well during that period. Right. So clearly bureaucracy, uh, you know, is a tool <laughs> that could be used for, <laughs> for good or bad. Um, but it's no coincidence, I think, that authoritarians or wannabe <laughs> authoritarians, aspiring authoritarians, always go after state capacity. They always go after bureaucracy. So tell us a little bit about why that is and and, and bring in um, this paper you sent me uh, a while back, which I've been sure. thinking about ever since, about the authoritarian dilemma, which is just any democracy is born 
out of something else and whoever was ruling or the upper class or the ruling class in that whatever else that was is not going to like mm-hmm. <laughs> transferring from that to democracy and is still going to be there in the democracy, probably willfully trying to destroy it. And yet the democracy being a democracy has to extend equal rights to those people. So, so you know, as if I've been thinking about that recently for obvious reasons. We have our own sort of aristocracy that never accepted <laughs> that never accepted the onset of real democracy. So, so anyway, to, to say a little bit about why you think it is that you see this sort of regularity throughout modern history. Sort of modern autocrats always want to degrade the state. Sure. We, we can see this in a number of uh, periods of American history and American uh, political development. I think one of them is uh, a, a great example is the, uh, the antebellum South. So these are, you know, the antebellum South and, and the, the slave states of the South are not democracies by any stretch of the imagination. The politics, uh, internal politics of the states are dominated, especially the deep South states, are dominated by massively wealthy landowning families that have huge estates and enslave hundreds and hundreds of people um, and make tremendous amounts of money, uh, both through the value of, of, of humans. I mean, humans are given a financial value during this uh, period and their land is valuable too, but they're also selling cotton uh, like gangbusters um, on international markets. And so they're in charge of everything in, in those states. Um, and so when you need to build a road there, you know, and when you, <laughs> right. when you want to, well, there aren't any schools, but, you know, if you want to, uh, you know, uh, take care of any kind of policy, and they have to have some policies, usually it's done through uh, highly personalized influence networks and clientelistic right. networks. Well, boy, networks as they are well, known. Exactly, exactly. And those at the top are at the top of those networks. And so the um, the imposition of authority from outside, that is to say like the federal government coming in and then in handing over the administration of roads, of schools, mm-hmm. of tax collection, one of the big ones, of land use and land distribution and uh, the monitoring and defense of people's rights well, that's going to look like a huge imposition and a giant loss of power that these elites really right. enjoyed in, in the prior pre-democratic era. And it's not just a loss of their money and their um, their prestige and all that. It's, it's really a loss of their identity, too. Like, these guys are the lords of this mm-hmm. area. They're, they're the equivalent of... The aristocracy, right. They, they really are. And and so, uh, you know, they stand to lose everything by uh, federalization and bureaucratization. And so they're going to, you know, push back against it. And so you, you do get some bureaucratization uh, during the Reconstruction period. You know, you have the Freedmen's Bureau, for example, which is a bureau dedicated to implementing the policies put in place after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are passed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's all kinds of problems with the Freedmen's Bureau. It's super, you know, understaffed, underfunded. But it is a federal bureaucratic system that is uh, enforced by uh, military uh, uh, force. The army is still occupying the South in the decade or so after the war. Um, And there's a violent insurrection against that uh, system. (laughs) This is one of my, this is one thing I often think about. I also think on some level, if you're a recipient or, or if you're on top of one of those local kind of local power structures, right? You're the like, you're the like son of the, the guy who owns the, all the car dealerships or whatever, you know, you happen to be uh, um, highly placed in that. I can't help but think that on some level, even if it's only subconscious, you know that to the extent things are made fair, Mm -hmm. to the extent everyone's playing by the same rules, right? To the extent the playing field is made more level, you're not going to come out on top where where you were, right? Absolutely. In so far as there is a hint of meritocracy introduced, right. you're in trouble, right? Like you know, on some level, that your reign is not justified or warranted by talent, right? That's why they've all put so much energy into the mythologies that that justify their their rule, right? Because I feel like they're insecure about it on some level. They know. 
Right. And, and think about the, uh, this is not really, uh, it can be in many cases a, bu- a bureaucratic uh, question, but think of the inclusion of women in elite uh, parts of the, the workforce and the, the labor markets yes. and, and the incredible pushback on that. So now all of a sudden, you know, if, if women, if 50% of the population, which had been relatively forcibly excluded from competition for the best jobs, the neurosurgeon, the, you know, the, uh, the high end lawyer, mm-hmm. all that stuff. You know, now this competition. Well, you know, the idiot third son of the local, <laughs> right, the, of the, the the local car dealership owner. Uh, I, I I was going to get into law school, you know, yes. and, and now I might not because you know uh, now I've got to put up with all this all this competition. Yes, all the aristocracies are terrified on some level that if the people they treat like shit gain some power will treat them like shit the way they treated. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's a real part of it. That's probably some psychologizing. On my part. So it's clear that the autocrats know that on some level, centralized bureaucracy works against them. So, but let's flip over and make the positive case, the sort of case for your bureaucracy, which I don't think trips off the tongue of modern lefties, mm-hmm. really. I'm not sure if you, you know, asked 10 random lefties on the street, like, how do you feel about bureaucracy, that they would feel positively at all, much less be able to sort of articulate why. Uh, bureaucracies are good. So let's let's tick through some of the reasons. Uh, the first one is one of the most interesting, I think, and it's something you argue in your writing that political science has overlooked, which is often bureaucracies, centralized bureaucracies, do not only you know sort of reflect democratic desires or reflect the desires of voters or or implement the desires of voters. They also affect voters and affect the way voters see things and and affect the way voters view politics and in some sense can create constituencies for further change. And so you wrote about how the Freedmen's Bureau worked that way. Say a little, say a little bit about that. Uh, Sure. There's an excellent literature on this uh, in political science uh, that goes by the name of uh, policy feedback uh, effects that that take place, um, you know, how uh, policies, uh, when they're implemented, affect the, the process. And so, yeah. So one of the, one of the ways I think that people really could frame positive effects of bureaucracy, there's, and there's a few of them. And I think the, the one you mentioned there is probably the most complicated. So I, I may get to that one uh, uh, last. I'll, I'll, I'll list a few a few possibilities. It's the one that's stuck in my head, but you're right. It's Same. probably no, no, it's, 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 the, <laughs> it's the one that I'm obsessed with because it's, it's the least it, obvious one. Maybe we should do the obvious ones first. And it'll kind of tie your brain in knots if if you think about it closely. But uh, we, we can get to that too. Um, so I think, I think one one of the things. You know that we can say about bureaucracy that is intuitively appealing is that it gives democratic citizens a kind of freedom and power that they wouldn't have otherwise had. And so what I mean is this, is that when majorities of citizens uh, vote for representatives because those representatives promise to put in place certain policies, well, if there's no administrative capacity to actually carry out those policies, then it doesn't matter if you vote for them or not, because they'll never really happen. Right. And so um, take, for example, uh, you know, clean water. So this is a Clean Water Act is, a, I know, a, 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 an area that interests you. And interest me and should interest all, all of us. You know, if you're if Congress puts in a law that says, you know, I command the uh, companies not to dump you know toxins into the air or d- dump toxins into the water, I command thee to do to do this. Um, again, it's kind of like shouting uh, for taxes from the treetops in the year 1200. Nobody's gonna gonna comply with this. You need to have a dedicated staff with a budget and a bunch of experts who can monitor the water quality, monitor the air quality on a day to day basis, and make sure sure that the compliance, uh, you know, is, is going on. Just to put a fine point on that, I, I talked with um, an expert in Chinese environmentalism recently. Cool. And, uh, well, I say recently, it was a few years ago. Um, he, one of the things he said was that the sort of central bureaucracy in China has some ambitions about clean air, you know, and uh, and clean water and, and climate change and all these things. But frequently it, it is doing that. It is shouting those commands down to local, the little local <laughs> parochial rulers who have other counter incentives, right? Who have other counter incentives about about making money and or, or fast economic growth, and who can just ignore it. In in that the Chinese Central Party views the EPA and the system of the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act with envy. It is because <laughs> precisely because it gives, yeah. it, it enables us to do these things that we want to do, right? Which are not trivial. 
And you know, when you talk about clean air, for example, Clean Air Act, I mean, this these are uh, these are policies with huge majority support. I think in an abstract way, if you say the EPA is you know uh, shutting down small businesses, and we all we all hate <laughs> uh, hate the environmental uh, environmentalists are telling you what to do, um, you know, it's, you can tell a story about that that'll get people to to hate the EPA. But when you when you ask people, but hey, you know, do do you want your kids you know to uh, have horrible asthma or get terrible cancers because of poisons in the air, everybody says no to that question. Yeah, the, the problem to me, though, is it's the next step you want them to take, which is the only way there is to do that is this big professionalized bureaucracy we've right. got. Like we've built a giant, complicated, very professional, very well-functioning machine that enables you to have those preferences you have, right? I mean, and if we didn't have the machine... You could have the, you know, as my granddad used to say, you could have the preferences in one hand and pee in the other and see which one fills up first. It's right. preferences without the capacity are, are futile. Absolutely. So I, th- I think that's one of the intuitive um, stories that, that, that we can tell uh, and, and that to broadcast publicly that, hey, here are these things that you say you want public and in massive majorities. Even Republicans will say they want to have clean air, right? Republican voters often agree with Democratic voters about specific policies. You know, it depends on how you word it, of course. But so, so you know, th- that you're, you're free to have those things because of um, and you're free to express your desires in, in your vote and have it you know, turn into a reality because of that administrative capacity. Mm-hmm. I think we can also make a case for a kind of individual uh, freedom, bodily freedom, that also Americans find uh, very appealing. So for example, are you really free to move around your area where you live, your metropolitan area? Are you really free to commute if you have terrible roads and and minimal transportation <laughs> right. options? Uh, if transportation infrastructure in your area is awful, you're actually your freedom to move around is reduced. Your choices are reduced. I used to live in uh, Chicago, and when I would go to work, I had let's see, I had two bus routes, I had two different uh, uh, train routes, and of course I could drive or I could bike or walk if I wanted to. But I had multiple options for going to work because there's a you know a crumbling sometimes but decent public transportation system. I, I live in South Carolina now, and there's very little transportation in- infrastructure in the South, and my choices are reduced. My individual yes. choices oh my are God. greatly reduced. I have to drive my car. I have no choice. Don't get me started on this. Most <laughs> Americans have no idea how much their freedom is restricted by car dependence under the illusion of freedom, right? I mean, the whole thing is sold under the banner of freedom, but nothing mm-hmm. more restricts our abilities and capacities and choices than car dependence. Absolutely, and, and it's a it's a forced choice too, right? You know, uh, it, it's a piece of administrative capacity that's that's lacking uh, uh, here. Yeah. So in both cases, we're getting a, a little bit at the distinction between negative and positive freedoms. You know what I mean? Uh, negative freedom just being people leave you alone, but positive freedoms being what is your array of choices? What sort of yes. the choice landscape and bureaucracy and good public administration and administrative capacity enlarges the choice landscape. So it increases positive freedoms. A hundred percent. And both on an individual level in terms of stuff you can do in your area, right. but also in a, a larger um, you know, uh, collective democratic sense too. We, the people, have more choices about what we can ask for and demand from our, our governments because they're able to deliver those things that we want, such as clean air, clean water, good infrastructure, that sort of thing. But the, the, the one that you asked about initially, uh, and this is, this is the tricky one, um, and this has to do with, with uh, that policy feedback literature and political science that I was talking about, that the way that administrative uh, programs are designed can often have profound uh, mobilizing effects on voting constituencies mm-hmm. and uh, really creative effects in producing new voting constituencies through which uh, we, the people, can express ourselves. But they also, if designed poorly or maliciously, which often is the case, um, they can also be profoundly demobilizing. And so there's multiple examples of this. So for uh, example, um, you know, you could think of uh, Social Security was intentionally designed to be very mobilizing. Um, so, you know, if you're working, you pay into Social Security while you're working. So you're highly conscious of the fact that mm-hmm. you are participating in social security throughout all of your working life. And so if politicians come in and say, hey, let's, you know, privatize social security and expose you to the vagaries of, of, of the market, um, or, uh, you know, let's try to get rid of it altogether, as I think a 
lot of donors to the uh, Republican Party at present would like to do, you have this already mobilizable constituency that's mm-hmm. ready to go to defend, hey, wait a minute, actually, we have this implicit right in this society not to die of old age in in, uh, in poverty and penury and starvation. Um, and so, uh, no, I'm going to I'm going to defend that right. And so, the way it's designed that makes it obvious to you that you're a, a recipient and a participant of this your whole life, even if you're not near retirement yet, even if you're like 35, but you've been paying in, into it for a while. You know, you know, you're paying into it, and you're going to defend it. And so, we saw that in action in 2005 after the 2004 election, the only only election since uh, 1988 in which a Republican candidate managed to win uh, the popular vote majority. Uh, trigger. To the trigger. <laughs> trigger warning. Yes, in, indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good, good Lord. I won't do a George W. imitation. <laughs> yes. Well, if there's one thing the U.S. has successfully done, uh, it is mobilize old people as a, as a political constituency. Yep. Boy, did we mobilize them. We mobilized old people in a number of different ways. You know, uh, Medicare is another example of that. People are very well aware that they're recipients of that program. And huge super majorities of Americans uh, like those programs. You know, Republicans, when polled, uh, majorities say that they like Medicare and poll Democrats. And it's like a you know, massive, massive majority. You know, you see that finding notoriously over and over again, which is Americans will tell you they hate bureaucracy mm-hmm. and they hate government, but almost every individual result of bureaucracy and government, they just love, which is why like part of making a case for bureaucracy has to be not always getting sucked up into these abstractions, you know, the sort of abstractions and talking more about the concrete things, even though we're here to talk about the abstractions. And I think that's right. And I think also part of the issue, too, is that although you know we can get too bogged down in thinking about the individual programs, you know, and thinking, um, well, you know, we're, we're policy wonks. And so therefore, let me talk about this program. Let me talk about that program. But one of the things we've failed to do, I think, is to come up with a coherent, uh, concise, unifying uh, narrative about why all of these administrative departments and programs are more than the sum of their parts, but actually are a, a, an inherent part of a modern democracy and making a free people and a kind of life that we as modern people want to live. Those institutions are essential to that. Yes, I was also uh, thinking, getting back to this example of sort of creating constituencies and feedback loops about the some of the few clean energy policies that have actually been successful and resilient. And one of the main one of the main ones is the federal tax credits. So there's this whole machinery now of federal tax credits around uh, renewable energy, mm-hmm. and uh, probably that policy has done more than anything else to mobilize those constituencies and, and make them sort of self-conscious of themselves as constituencies and, and really, um, you know, politically mobilized. I saw uh, the media that, that you um, you had recently purchased an electric car. Is that, is that correct? <laughs> yes, I did. I got <laughs> a little used Bolt. Cool. And, and for used, is, is there uh, significant tax incentives for that? No. Just new, huh? I, there are some in the Build Back Better Act. Ah, of course, <laughs> there are yeah. some for used cars in the Build Back <laughs> Better Act, which is floating forever. Uh, but but no, we didn't get any. But uh, the Bolt is going to get a new battery because of the recall. So it'll be like getting a new. It's like a new car. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think you're absolutely right. And we see that we see like the, the uh, even stuff like um, yeah, tax incentive, tax breaks can be profoundly mobilizing. For example, uh, mortgage tax breaks, which are can fuel inequality because, yes. of course, renters don't get that, which is why is that? That doesn't make sense. Yes. We mobilized <laughs> right. homeowners, too. That's right. one another thing the U.S. has done really well. Mobilize homeowners against future homes. So, so these, these mobilizing effects can be can be very negative if they're focused on entrenching uh, you know, people who are already benefiting from the system and mm-hmm. shutting out other people, as you say, with you know, blocking out a uh, new home building. But they can also, I think in the case of something like um, clean energy, whether it's a, a tax incentive for solar panels or uh, you know, buying a, a new battery or, a, or a, new, uh, a new electric car, that also could be mobilizing and that could be mobilizing in, in, in good ways. And I, th- I think we could also say something about public transportation. If you suddenly you know, told New Yorkers you're going to take away the subway system and we're all driving cars now, um, people would uh, you know, explode. I mean, it would be, you, couldn't, you couldn't do that. And yet we can't seem to build a new one anywhere. It's, it's Correct. Some, so another, another um, sort of thing to say in favor of administrative capacity uh-huh. is that you notice that it's um, – it's the first way we've, or an only way we've figured out how to sustain a broad middle class in a democracy, which is also a relatively new 
uh, thing in the world. <laughs> it, re- it really is. I and mean, the, the, you know, when the U S was founded by random chance, it was a relatively equal society amongst landowning, uh, you know, men at least, you know, <laughs> right. which is a restrictive <laughs> right. group, obvious white, I should say free white men. Um, which is a not a universal group by, by any stretch of the imagination. But if you look at the data, economic data from the time, the U.S. was a more equal society economically than, say, England was at the time or other countries in Western Europe mm-hmm. and other countries uh, elsewhere. Um, and then inequality uh, rose over the course of the 19th century. And really, there's this sweet spot period of r- relative income equality and relative, not perfect equality by any means, but a much more equal society in the few decades after World War II. And uh, there are multiple different causes of that period where there was enough of an equal distribution of wealth to build a large middle class for the first time in American history. And one of the first times in, in world history, really, that you have this sort of large, you know, modern urban kind of working, um, you know, uh, middle class. Part of that was undergirded by a, a huge array of uh, administrative programs that intentionally was produced to build a middle class. There was uh, billions of dollars of uh, public money was put into middle class housing development in, in suburbs. You know, this is suburban development. A lot of that was uh, uh, administered on a, on a uh, racially exclusive basis. Right. A lot of those policies were only for white homeowners explicitly at the federal, state, and local levels. But those policies did build a larger middle class than had, had lived there uh, before. And um, you can see this also with uh, you know, the Social Security and uh, also the administration of collective bargaining rights, which mm. was uh, tremendously important for, for building a, a large middle class. If you want to redistribute wealth, which is you know, sort of a demonized phrase these days, but clearly is what we and every other democracy are doing, You know, if you want to do that on a large scale, if you want to keep income inequality from getting out of control and you want to systematically lift up the working classes, you need a big machine to do that, to to, to redistribute all that money. That's there's no way to do that without, you know, it's such a fraught job and so fraught with the temptation for corruption and inside dealing and all these things. The only thing I think, and this is, I think that's about the EPA too, the only way you get around that is to create an administrative culture that values itself in its own values and its own, has its own practices. Do you know what I mean? Has sort of integrity aside from the interests of, of the people it's dealing with. You know what I mean? Like you need an administrative culture of quality and competence, especially in that area. Yes, and this is one of the reasons why the the IRS has been intentionally uh, attacked, yes, uh, uh, de- defunded, and understaffed uh, over the last several decades. I mean, the, the U.S. has become a much more unequal society um, over the last uh, four four decades as the gains of economic growth have gone, you know, to the people at the very very top, the very wealthy have gotten much wealthier. We, we all know the story. Um, and, you know, incomes have stagnated for 90% of, of Americans while healthcare costs, secondary education costs, housing costs have gone up and up and up and up and mm-hmm. up. So, you know, the middle class has shrunk. And, you know, taxing wealthy people who can pay for it to fund infrastructure and education that'll help ordinary people get ahead without destroying wealthy people, without, you know, no one's talking about revolution or, uh, right. uh, you know, at least in mainstream politics. Um, you know, those are that's a pretty popular program. If you ask people about, you know, hey, should very wealthy people pay a little bit more in taxes since they've been benefiting way more than everybody else over the last 40 years. Um, people say yes to that at, at uh, large majority rates. This is what I was getting at before. Like you can get people to say yes to that. Yeah. But then how do you get them to take the next step to not just love taxing rich people, but to love the IRS without which you could not do it, <laughs> well, right? And, they, and, and still the IRS has this terrible reputation. And by design, I mean, what, what the counter strategy to that, a very intentional counter strategy to that has been to pour, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars of lobbying money uh, into Congress to have uh, Congress when, you know, uh, writing tax law to write in all kinds of uh, exceptions and complications. I forget the, the U.S. tax code is tens of thousands of pages long when other countries' uh, tax codes are, are, are often uh, shorter. Yes, and we force, you know, we force normal people to fill out their own tax returns, which in, I don't even know if most Americans are aware of this, but in other civilized countries, the government will generally just fill out your forms for you. Mm-hmm. 
and send them to sign you. We don't do that because TurboTax right. has a lock has a lock on Congress. So correct. Uh, you know the lack of administrative capacity is often if you need large organizations to do things, large bureaucracies to do things, and you erode away your administrative capacity. What comes to fill that is uh, corporate capacity, which is not you know. Not better, not necessarily more efficient, you know, despite all the sort of market myths is like, I I feel like neoliberalism should have taught us it's not automatically better to have private actors fill that space. And this is often the, the, you know, contemporary equivalent of old uh, feudal um, you know, personal influence net- networks, <laughs> right. really, where, you know, we're going to have, oh, private owners, they will take care of all these services for you in ways that obviously are going to benefit them primarily. And with the wealth that they accrue from capturing these these services, uh, they're going to feed that wealth back into the political process to, to bend uh, the, the rules more in their favor. And, and a tax law is a great e- example of, of that, where the tax law is so complicated, the IRS can easily get a hold of all of my records because <laughs> right. you know, all, all of my income com- comes from working. So, um, but you know, it, it's easy to hide uh, money if you have enough money to pay for the kinds of financial services that know how to do that. And the huge, you know, very powerful uh, financial services firms that cater to wealthiest clients, yeah, you know, they have way more legal firepower than the IRS has <laughs> by design yes. because those firms lobby Congress to uh, defund and you know uh, and, and diminish. The uh, you know the, the personnel uh, in, in the IRS, and so that also then feeds back onto the public, where people say, "Yeah, I hate the IRS. It's such a pain to fill out those forms." Yes. Um, and, and then I get audited. I'm, right. I'm just a small business owner. Why am I being audited when, uh, as as we've seen, uh, you know, very wealthy Americans are paying close to nothing in taxes these days? Yeah, they somehow rallied to defang and degrade the IRS, and you know to get. Back to uh, the larger theme of the conversation here, there wasn't language laying around Mm -hmm. (laughs) with which to with which to defend a big bureaucracy. You know, we don't sort of have that. uh, We don't have that vocabulary or the sort of conceptual structure, despite the fact this I was going to ask you about this, too, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that. You know, the U.S. has this sort of uh, mythology of individualism and, you know, yeoman farmers and independence and all this. But the U.S. has actually been a pioneer in bureaucracy at several points. Tell us about that, not just and not just in the sort of modern era. Uh, yes. And so, you know, uh, one of the issues I think we have in talking about uh, bureaucracy is that so much of our language for talking about politics comes from early modern and ancient Europe where strong centralized bureaucratic states were notably absent. <laughs> um, and so a lot of our language is uh, based around I, I, you know, I, I ideas that are wonderful and, and that, that are in many cases worth defending, of course, but they don't tell us much about bureaucratic uh, institutions. And uh, it's interesting, this was an issue in the 19th century as the first centralized bureaucratic institutions are developing. And I, I guess it, or one of the earliest examples would be the post office department, mm-hmm. um, which had thousands of employees and had a centralized administrator overseeing it that actually was a cabinet position by the a- a- 1820s and covered thousands and thousands of miles of, of roads. And this was the principal source of information dispersal that was able to create uh, a new national modern democracy in the United States where... Yes, yes. Getting back to our point about, about the feedbacks, right? Like right. this, the ability to send information to and fro anywhere in this territory in a large way made it into a country, made it feel like a single thing, like a country it created... Uh, Americans as a constituency, right? Exactly. As Tocqueville uh, puts it in, in Democracy in America, it law, I don't know the exact words that he used, but it, it took this abstract idea of a national uh, community or a, a national uh, you know, uh, country and it lodged it in people's habits. Mm-hmm. So it's no longer just concepts anymore. It's right. in your actual habits. You feel like a member of this we the people that was just words on paper a couple decades ago. You were a member, you were, you know, you you belong to Virginia or Massachusetts or whatever. But you know, the, the building of a national culture was produced through the rise of administrative capacity in the US. What's interesting is 19th century Americans often didn't recognize this. They you know they they thought of the US government only in terms of of the separation of the three powers and uh, and the Bill of Rights and that sort of thing. And they often didn't recognize it. Throughout the 19th century, Americans did not describe 
those kinds of institutions as administrative or bureaucratic institutions. They just didn't have a concept for it, really, because it wasn't yet part of the national culture. You know, and it's interesting now you see the U.S. Supreme Court conservatives definitely going after the administrative state. And you see them now, um, you know, originalism itself, you could say, is almost by definition, not going to support robust administrative capacity because the original documents didn't. The original thinking didn't. There Mm -hmm. wasn't really any there when those documents were were formed and written. So, which, which of course is like classic. Like, why do we think we developed that since then? I wonder if there are reasons. I wonder. (laughs) Anyway, so the U.S. develops these things. And actually, you know, in the 20th century, Weirdly, under Nixon, you know, there's kind of a flourishing of administrative capacity mm-hmm. in ways that is really, like, really is notably successful. I feel like, in a way, it's not part of our sort of like folk stories about America, about right. American successes, but like the flourishing of administrative capacity in those years has redounded to our benefit in so many ways. Absolutely. And, and as you say, you know, uh, with, with the, uh, give the example of the Clean Air Act, this is a, a, an innovative program. You know, the, the U.S. is a, a first adopter of some of these, you know, and you can say something similar about the, some of the New Deal programs, you know, from the 30s and 40s, some of which have lasted, you know, to, to the present, such as Social Security. And think of the huge gains made by, you know, middle class people in the United States due to collective bargaining rights that were um, monitored and implemented by, um, you know, through the National uh, Labor Relations Board and uh, other other uh, agencies. Sure. Well, and it's well known in the sort of environmental sphere, there's this phenomenon called green drift, mm-hmm. which basically is about, you know, like once the Reagan revolution happened, they made it practically impossible to pass substantial new environmental legislation. Mm-hmm. But the administrative capacity set up by those sort of pivotal 60s and 70s laws, the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, et cetera, just kept evolving. It was designed to evolve and it just kept evolving and moving forward and taking care of new threats and expanding its remit. It was sort of built to uh, uh, evolve alongside. And that's that's really the main reason the oligarchs hate it <laughs> because it works so well. And they, they have funneled billions of dollars into think tanks to develop uh, theories as to why that kind of uh, creep, that mission creep yes. uh, within bureaucratic institutions is uh, fundamentally uh, against American principles and yes. it am- amounts to, and they've been saying this since, since the 30s, amounts to a form of socialism, in some cases even communism, uh, um, and yes. and is, is a, a road to uh, to destruction road to serfdom yeah it's funny those arguments how old you know every generation they just pop back up again barely changed from from the last version so we're getting towards the end here but i kind of want to um theorize a little bit abstractly about about bureaucracy because i feel like there are two contrasting uh sort of instincts or impulses i think that ordinary people have about bureaucracy and i certainly have it one is the traditional conservative instinct, which is the farther away from the local level you move administration, the more you centralize it, the more you create these bureaucracies that are distant from the people they're supposed to serve and they become inefficient and they issue these burdensome rules because they're not in touch enough with the sort of people on the ground. You know, this this whole idea that centralizing moves away from democracy. Um, you know, I think this is a very common small C conservative uh, story they've told, and it's sort of sunk in almost, uh, even to ordinary people, I think. But then there's the counter intuition, which I have very strongly these days, <laughs> which which is that the closer the locus of political control uh, or, or administration gets to the local level, the more likely it is just to recreate those local power hierarchies. Do you know what I mean? The more likely it is to just be taken over by those local power hierarchies and used to their benefit. You know, so I think of, you know, I think of the example of in California, NIMBYs, you know, they have this theoretically extremely democratic process mm-hmm. in, of housing in California. But what that mainly amounts to is locals control everything and they just use it to cement their power and their money which derives from housing scarcity so so in that case you know it's very intuitive like 
to be more fair and to pursue more public benefits, you need to be moving the administration up levels, away from the local levels. So, you know, there's these two, I think, everybody has versions of these two instincts. And I guess, is there something we can say about what it marks a good <laughs> and legitimate bureaucracy from the many, many bad ones we have examples of? Like, are there are there rules or guidelines about what's a, the best bureaucracy and what's the right level of sort of administrative control? Uh, that, that's a great question. I, I think the, uh, uh, the the answer, as always, is incredibly complicated, unfortunately. Uh, muddle through. I, I think that there, there are some things we can say clearly, though. And I think that the administration of uh, policies that touch upon people's fundamental rights uh, as people and also um, as citizens, for example, voting rights, I think we have seen in American history how dangerous it is to leave those up to the local level. Yeah, states' rights, states' rights. Right. That's what it's exactly. always been about. And, you know, uh, it's true. Maybe there are different policies that are more appropriate for administration at a local or state uh, level or a regional level, for example. But um, I think those kinds of policies that touch upon fundamental uh, rights, uh, mm-hmm. it's not enough to, to leave them up to the states, as people say, because it's too dangerous that those uh, those laws will be captured by, by local elites um, and that um, you know p- people's rights will be will be taken away from them, and we we're seeing this as a real possibility uh, in the current uh, you know moment with uh, reproductive rights. Well, it seems we you know we disagree about uh, <laughs> what's a, what's a basic right and what That's is right. it. I mean, we're sort of having that argument under cover of this weird procedural argument about yeah. which level of government we're going to do it at. You know, it's a little silly. Yeah. Uh, although, I, and I think the, the well, this as as an aside, it's not part of our not part of our topic today. But I've I've uh, I think a lot of the elites who say and the ordinary citizens who say they want to get rid of those rights are, have not thought through the horribly authoritarian consequences that are to follow as soon as Roe goes down. How how do you speaking of administrative capacity? How do you police that rule if yes. all of a sudden abortion is murder in, in one state, but it's not murder in the other state? Uh, right next door, how are you going to police that without intense surveillance, discipline, and horrible threats? Well, conservatives love uh, law enforcement administrative capacity, right? right? They, they they love the need for that. I mean, uh, look, look at the sort of knee-jerk uh, response to 9-11 in the years following that. A right. lot of that was just a bureaucratization of, you know, a paranoia and permanent war war footing, <laughs> And you need a you know you need a coherent critique of bureaucracy in those cases that also makes room for for good bureaucracy. So as you say, like the more fundamental the rights involved, it seems the the less should be left in local hands. <laughs> and also, um, y- you know, you mentioned uh, public participation or or public uh, feedback. You know, some way for the administrative process to not be the opposite of democracy, but to, to sort of involve democratic participation. Uh, yes, I, I think that that's also a way we can uh, measure or or think about whether this is a a good democratic, uh, you know, public power enhancing, public freedom enhancing um, kind of administrative uh, system or not is whether it mobilizes or demobilizes people. So, right. for example, if you have a a healthcare uh, law such as uh, Medicaid that states will often administer because it deals with poorer people, um, states will often fragment the implementation of of these laws within the state and intentionally put up uh, several administrative burdens, like all kinds of paperwork you have to get about how, you know, whether you're, you're working, how much you're working, how much you look, how many hours a week you're looking for work. Mm-hmm. Um, and this makes it very difficult for people to access you know, to access those programs, but it also is profoundly demobilizing because you've fragmented groups of citizens, you've branded them as less than the rest of the population, um, which is a, a, a horrible thing to do. And you've given them all of this administrative work that they have to do. And so it's, it is, they don't have time for, for anything else. It is pr- profoundly uh, demobilizing. This is what I think sort of earnest, some of your earnest center lefties, moderate Dems don't really get. They hear about means testing and they're right. just thinking about it in this sort of um, abstract quantitative, you know, like how does it affect the top line budget numbers? Right. But I think, um, you know, the conservatives pushing stuff like that get on a deeper level that 
the real effect of means testing is demobilization, is, is just to make the whole thing more complicated, mm-hmm. to set certain recipients against, you know, other, other, other recipients. Yes. Just they, they I, I think they instinctively get that the demobilizing effect matters more than the, even than like a budget effect. Very clearly, and, and they, they learned this uh, uh, from their successful anti-labor uh, politics. So, um, you know, going after labor, uh, you know, private sector labor unions uh, from the 80s onwards, you know, successfully really gutting those, those unions, that was a major source of mobilization for the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. of course, um, you know, but there's no reason why uh, Republicans couldn't also appeal to the, those unions. They obviously just, uh, you know, didn't want to, you know, so that mobilization was terrifying, for uh, anti anti labor uh, Republicans and, and huge business owners who don't want to pay higher wages, uh, or and certainly don't want to pay for any social programs through through taxation, and so uh, that, was, that was an intentional strategy to shut down unions, not just because they don't want the union to bother them about higher wages, but also because they saw that political mobilization power that unions give to ordinary workers, and this is also why more recently they've gone after public sector unions, such as mm-hmm. in the case of um, of Wisconsin. Under, under Scott Walker, not to not to get all socialist on you, but the last thing capital wants is for workers to be mobilized and yeah. to think of themselves as a constituency. I mean, this sort of legendarily, this is what racism has always been about in in the U.S. In part, is preventing the formation of a sort of cross racial, you know, self identified constituency of workers. Absolutely. And one of the most successful strategies, if you want to, can, so let's say you, you, again, you poll people, do you want to have, you know, clean water, clean air? Absolutely. Right. Uh, if you poll most Americans and ask, would you like to have a government have a, uh, introduce a better uh, public health care system that will reduce your costs and, and provide better outcomes to more people, which we know is possible because other countries do mm-hmm. it. Um, <laughs> the, the, most people will say, oh, actually, you know, yes, I really would like that kind of administrative system to to be established and strengthened and well-funded so that I get, get better medical services because the private healthcare system in the United States is a total catastrophe. It's awful. People hate it and are aware of the fact that they hate it. This is why the um, get your government hands off my Medicare sign is so, is so telling right. it, it, it speaks to this split brain, right? Mm-hmm. Like the effect of the bureaucracy, right? The administrative capacity the the results of it are valued and yet somehow at the same time in the same mind <laughs> the origin of that administrative capacity is bad somehow like the capacity itself is bad somehow even though the results are good and this is a, an effect of elite messaging you know and, and the right has been very very the republican party and the massive wealthy donor organizations that are effectively have taken over the party at this point um, they've been really effective at uh, repeating over and over and over again a very simple narrative that those uh, institutions amount to socialism and tyranny. And especially they have been very effective through dog whistles and sometimes through overt uh, appeals to uh, paint administrative institutions, especially social insurance and other forms of of regulation, as racial transfers from hardworking white Americans Mm -hmm. to those people, quote unquote, who who don't want to work, which is, of course, nonsense. But it's been very effective. And you, you you can get people to vote against people who are promising the stuff that they actually want. (laughs) If you can can convince them, if you can activate that feeling of identity threat, Mm -hmm. you know, against people like me, trying to take stuff from people like me. In fact, most of those voters uh, would benefit. And when asked separately from that messaging, know that they would benefit from that. And so the the question is, what is the elite counter messaging that can uh, uh, can activate those voters otherwise? I don't know. (laughs) You know, that's a a tough question. Some of them may may be gone for a while. That leads us to our final topic here, the, that very tough question, the final topic of, of politics. I, you know, ever since I, I, I read your stuff on bureaucracy, I've been, you know, I, and I've been thinking about administrative capacity for a while and thinking about, uh, you know, the sort of love affair that American lefties have with the Scandinavian uh, governments. Yeah. But, but missing from that is specifically an appreciation of their very competent, professionalized administrative capacity they're, they're they they are good at government and that is what enables the whole thing to happen so here's my story about this is the 2016 democratic primary yeah you have a variety of <laughs> messages on offer you have several sort of 
traditional moderate dim, uh, you know, wishy-washiness. You got Sanders on the left uh, offering the all the socialist goodies. And then you have Warren, who a big part of Warren's message and a big part of her public record is about administrative capacity. She gets it <laughs> that it's incredibly important, like what agencies you have, who is staffing the agencies, what the rules are. She gets that it's the sort of mechanics and the architecture behind the scenes that are really shaping results. And she tried to build a campaign, at least in part around, you know, like I've got a plan for that. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to make a pub. I'm going to make the administrative state better. I've got plans to fix the bureaucracies and make them, you know, more high functioning and all that. And to me, that's like, singing my heart song you know like i'm that that's what gives me the the starbursts or tingles or whatever uh Phelan used to give people but but then but then you have you have the moderate dims supposedly the pragmatists right the self-identified pragmatists they don't seem to care about it they just care about their same old boring sort of uh watered down austerity stuff and then the lefties the sanderites didn't really seem to care about it either. So <laughs> Warren just didn't take off. And, 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 and to me, one of the lessons, you know, there's obviously a lot going on uh, in and around all that. But the, one of the lessons to me is just, it is super difficult to mobilize people in a democratic polity around good bureaucracy, even though good bureaucracy is the very fundament of everything they want and care about. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, is that, you know, is that just the way of things and we're stuck with it and you got to talk around it? Or is there any, do you see any prospect of making, you know, a defense of administrative capacity, a defense of state capacity, a real significant plank in anyone's politics? Or is it just something that it's like, we know, but you know, you have to talk about something else with the public. I, I think that it's time for uh, Democrats and others who want to defend uh, democracy against its very uh, dangerous assault at the moment. Uh, I think it's time for us to uh, lean in to the actual benefits that we receive from living, and I don't mean financial benefits from particular programs, but the stability, yeah. uh, the capacity for um, wealth generation, you know, if you want to look at it in those terms, um, the the capacity to uh, make choices in your in your life and to vote for stuff that you want to, to vote for and have clean air that your kids can enjoy and a, and a future that's bright for all of us. Did you? I'm sure you've read Michael Lewis's uh, yes, exactly. uh, fifth, fifth Risk. That's a great book. That's just exactly about this. Like there's there's administration stuff going on all around you right. all the time, keeping you safe. You don't even know about it. People take a pay cut to do those jobs. Yeah. They can make more money in industry, and they choose not to because they love that stuff, you know. And but I, I think I think there is a narrative. I think it's time for for us to uh, to lean into that narrative. And I think one of the pitfalls we can fall into is, and I'm not saying necessarily that, that Warren did, but if we focus only on uh, the uh, fragmented array of various administrative programs and why they're individually good. Obviously do that too. Right. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> right. But if we only say, I have a plan for that and for that and for that and for that, but we don't stitch that together into a coherent narrative that your freedom to vote, your freedom to have the policies that you want, your freedom to have a possibility of a middle-class life and an affordable house to live in and roads that work and schools that you really want. And a stable climate. And a, and, and a stable climate <laughs> and, and a rational program for when areas are going to degrowth because the Colorado River isn't flowing anymore. <laughs> you know, all, all those things are, are about to happen. And, and for your children and for your grandchildren, do you want to be free to have those things or do you want to have those things taken away from you because Steve Bannon and massively wealthy billionaires are working 24 hours a day with laser focus to destroy those administrative systems on which your freedom depends? I mean, you, you can have a more rousing kind of, of language for this and not 
get bogged down in the details. Of course, you're going to have policy you know, stuff on your website that's going to talk about those details and how, <laughs> how you're going to fund it, how you're going to implement it, and why why this design is mobilizing to constituencies and why this one is bad. No, I'm not going to use it. You know, absolutely do that. Get in the weed stuff. But I think there is a, a passionate story to be told uh, about bureaucracy and democracy in America, and I think that uh, people might be ready ready to hear it. I hope. Well. Uh... <laughs> I'm trying to envision how that might play yeah, out in coming Maybe elections. Maybe over-optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe uh, in 10 years when we've, you know, when the war's over and uh, reconstruction has begun. Maybe then. Jeez. Uh, all right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This is a uh, uh, fascinating. I'm. Um, you know, I was, I was excited to find someone thinking about this and trying to sort of uh, rehab uh, bureaucracy in the eyes of political science. So thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.